Welcome to episode 21 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and Benjamin Britten. Hello! Hello! Uh, my name is Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlock. You're listening to episode 21 of That Classical Podcast. Welcome, welcome. Uh, 21, we've come of age. If, if yeah. uh, we could actually, in America, buy our own beer now... And gamble responsibly. All of those things. And speaking of America, we were lucky enough to be featured on the front page of the US iTunes store last week. So hey to all our new American listeners. How's it going? Uh, Yeah. You're very welcome. You're welcome here. Today, lads and lassies, it's a two-composer episode. So we are going to talk about Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and Benjamin Britten. Hopefully you've heard of one or both or none. That's all right. You're welcome here too. (laughs) All all is fine. Um, It's all fine. And that means that it's time for the 60 second. It's the tooth of fine cruel. 60 second biography. (laughs) You've got to tell me all about Uh, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor's life in a minute or less. God, why did we put this immense pressure on ourselves? I just don't know. know. Right, okay. Are you ready to time me? I'm absolutely ready to time you. Fantastic. Are you ready, Kelly? No. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Three, two, one... Go. Samuel Coleridge Taylor was born August 1875 in Homelander to a Sierra Leonean Creole father and an English mother. Sadly, his dad returned to Africa before Samuel was born, so he was raised by his mum and granddad. His granddad taught him the violin from a young age, and as always with great composers, he was super bloody talented. So the family arranged proper violin lessons for him, and in 1890 they chipped together and paid for Samuel to study at violin at the Royal College of Music. He was 15. After two years, he swapped studying composition because he was well good at it. After graduating, he after graduating, he became conductor of a small orchestra in Croydon and began to earn a reputation as a fantastic composer, winning prizes and judging competitions. 1896, met African American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar set some of his poems to music. Paul encouraged Samuel to draw inspiration from his African ancestry. 1898, Sam had written ballad. And a minor, and Edward Elgar was like, Samuel Coruscant is the bomb. And Sam wrote High Author's Wedding that year, and everyone was like, You're amazing. Sadly, he barely got any money for it, struggled financially throughout life. 1899, married Jesse Wormsley, popped out a couple of kids. He toured the state several times with great success, even got invited to the White House, had an inspiration, <laughs> was an inspiration and champion for many talented African Americans who were being oppressed by racial conflict. And he sought to do for African music what Brahms did for Hungarian music, and Dvorak <laughs> did for Bohemian music. He was an absolute legend. 1912, uh, he lived until 1912, he lived in London to teach compositions and conducted loads of choirs and orchestras. 1912, he contracted double pneumonia and died Three, at the age of 37. Two, Perfectly timed there. Thank you very much. That was really cool. Okay, so you spoke very quickly there. Can you just (laughs) break that down for me a bit? Um, Okay, so first of all, let's talk about his name. Okay, so he, most people actually called him Coleridge instead of Samuel. And his mum obviously loved this. So Samuel Taylor Coleridge, lads, was a poet. Okay. And his mum clearly loved Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He was like, I'm going to call my son Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Um, Yeah, two out of ten for originality there. Um, But yeah, so Samuel Taylor Coleridge was a poet. He wrote like The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan. And he was like busy mates with Will Will Wordsworth. All that jazz. Got it, got it. So Samuel Coleridge Taylor, what a guy. So if you heard, I hope you heard me say in the 60 second biography that he sought to do for African music what Brahms did for Hungarian music and Dvorak did for Bohemian music. Okay. So within that, he incorporated traditional African music with concert music and he brought that to the public and put okay. a totally new spin on it. So he wrote things like African Suite, African Dances. We're going to listen later today to Symphonic Variations on an African Air. And he mm. brought all these sort of, a lot of African spirituals like okay. into, into classical music and they're just beautiful. They're, they're absolutely wonderful. wonderful. Um, and obviously he faced a lot of difficulties over his entire career 
because of racial prejudice. Sure. Um, he was bullied at school. The principal of the Royal College of Music hesitated over letting him in in case mm. students objected. Mm. And his, his wife's parents didn't approve of their marriage, all this stuff. God. He was yeah. so up against it, but made this absolutely just wonderful music. Mm. I think it's also, yeah, worth noting that the, the majority of composers we've talked about, if not all, have been oh, white because yeah. that is, you know, something that's part of the European canon that, like, the majority of famous composers are white Just men. Just white dudes, yeah. And, um, and hardly any women either. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we really want to find some music by non-white guys yeah, if possible. So do great. get in touch if you have composers that you think are uh, underrepresented, that are super yeah. cool, that we haven't heard of maybe. Well, we'd love to know. Get in really, touch. Really, really Let us know. know, absolutely. So... Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Yeah. Let's absolutely dive in to the first piece. To the tunes. Let's do it. Okay, right. The first piece we're going to talk about is Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, all right? Okay. Now, fresh from Sam's or Coleridge's uh, success <laughs> writing Ballad and A Minor. Um, so when he wrote this Ballad and A Minor, Edward Elgar, did you hear me say this in the 60 Seconds? Probably. El- Elgar was like, whoa, Nelly. Okay. He is great. And we just totally like championed him um, Mm. from that point onwards. So basically Samuel's really becoming more successful, more in the public eye. Nice. And he reads Henry Longfellow's poem called The Song of Hiawatha. And he's really inspired by it and puts it to music. So this poem, I've got to tell you about this poem. Who's Hiawatha? What? Uh, let me tell you. Hiawatha. Right. Oh, no, you did So the poem is about um, sort of different Native American characters. Mm. And here's a short synopsis. I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> so the master of life, all right, just picture the scene. Master of life, Mr. Big Boy Pants himself, comes down to earth. Yeah. And he's like, lads, 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 can we just stop fighting? Can we just... Or be mates. Okay. You know. Uh... Or I'm going to turn this whole earth around. <laughs> Don't make me. So I'm looking at you, Gary. Put the hammer down. Gary puts the hammer okay. down. Um, so then everything's fine. And he's like, great. Thanks for doing that, lads. So now if you guys go off and commemorate this day by making a pipe, like a little pipe to smoke. A peace pipe, yeah. A peace pipe, right. Yeah. Just you do that. And then you guys go and you make your own peace pipe. And guys, when you get angry again, when you want to fight, when you're getting a bit, you know, snappy, a bit miffed, I want you to come together and smoke that pipe. Perfect. Right. Yep. And, and remember this day. All right. Okay. So just have a little smoke and chill. All right. So bye. Oh, and before I go, um, there's going to be a prophet that's going to arrive. He's going to, Bear all your hardships so you don't have to, you know? Okay. Bye. Oh, before I go, you know, I don't condone smoking, so maybe you can just mime smoking to you know, because you just save your lungs. Do you know what I mean? He didn't say that last well, bit. I just don't like think smoking is cre- very nice. <laughs> if the creator of all life, you I, should know about the I took health risks inherent in smoking. <laughs> don't smoke, children, okay? <laughs> so, okay, so this guy, he leaves. And then pretty soon after, a boy named Hiawatha is born. Oh, All right. Yeah. And he grows up to be a wise, strong man with a reputation for being a wise, strong man. Uh, he does great stuff. He grows some like epic corn and he kills some epic fish. But amongst all this, he's like, oh, I wish I had a a, a wife okay. uh, by my yeah. side, you know, just someone to spoon. Um, <laughs> and uh, then he, he has, he gets one. He meets one. Oh, uh, a lovely woman called Minihaha. And they get married and he continues to do lovely things. But then sadly, it ends badly. Oh. Minihaha dies oh. and Hiawatha starts having visions. He's like, whoa, a bunch of white dudes are going to come over and teach my people a new religion. 
I better go. This sounds fine. <laughs> genuinely. Our land's about to be invaded. Yeah, it's probably fine. Yeah, yeah, genuinely, he's like, this is a good time for me to leave. Like, I'm sorry, Hiawatha, where does that ever end well? <laughs> like, a bunch of white dudes invading. That always goes wrong. Anyway. Okay. So then he goes and he just never comes back. Okay. And that's the end of the poem. So Simon Coleridge Taylor read this and he was like, this deserves a song. Okay. So he wrote the song of Hiawatha as nice. music. Nice. And, it, and he made it into three cantatas. Now, if you remember, lads and lassies, a cantata is a piece for voices. So it could either be a solo voice or a group of voices with orchestral accompaniment. And it's usually in several movements. Yeah. All right. So um, it's three cantatas. The first one is called Hiawatha's Wedding. And this was the big, this is the big one, the big success. And mm-hmm. then the next one was The Death of Minnehaha. And finally, the last one was Hiawatha's Departure. And he wrote all of these between 1898 and 1900. And they were just an enormous success. Just oh, huge. Cool. People went absolutely mad over them. So today, we're going to listen to Hiawatha's Wedding. And it's made up of nine movements, um, eight for chorus and orchestra, and one just for solo, tenor and orchestra. Beautiful. And we're going to listen to And When All the Guests had finished <laughs> that's the title uh, basically it's the part of the poem where they've had this enormous feast right they've just finished eating lots of corn and fish lots of <laughs> corn and fish and then they're like let's have a smoke and watch someone do a dance beautiful and that's basically what you're going to hear so let's have a listen let's do it It kind of sounds like, well, you know what it reminds me of? You know, like in a Disney film where they're doing like a scene yes, setting song? Yes, it's like, like a chorus. Like, like, like in Frozen where they have like, we're cutting the ice and this is establishing where we are. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's always what it sounds like Do you know to what? Me. It reminds me actually of that really old style Disney, like the 1940s, yeah, 50s yeah, Disney, yeah. where the chorus of voices. Uh, but no, it's beautiful. The first time I heard that, I got goosebumps. I thought it was just really Lovely. lush and mm. the kind of um, interlinking harmonies there. Yeah. It's really beautiful remind me again what year that was written in so that would have been 1898 1898 okay so not that far off 1940s disney exactly a few years scant years before um the tragic thing about hiawatha's wedding is that let me break this down for you so (laughs) back in the day and indeed still now uh, composers were not handsomely paid all right uh, for their music and it meant that they often sold the rights to the music kind of outright at the time you know in order to make money then and there And that meant that they didn't have any kind of access to the royalties from the publishers, you know, distributing the music. So uh, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast was like so popular. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. But Samuel Coleridge Taylor had sold it for 15 guineas. No, that's not enough guineas. I know. And to be honest, I actually did try to Google this. I tried to Google how much 15 guineas (laughs) is worth today. I got different answers ranging from 30 pounds to 14 grand. So if anyone knows how much 15 guineas would be in today's money, with inflation in the UK yeah, right yeah. okay um, let me know but anyway that was tragic isn't it um, very sad time. but it is Hiawatha's Wedding Feast it's absolutely brilliant go and have a listen to all of the all of the cantatas they're, they're fantastic and it's very dramatic and if you like that kind of <laughs> you're gonna love it um, great uh, the Classical Podcast next 
Hello. So next we're going to talk about symphonic variations on an African air. Lovely. Uh, and Sam composed this in 1906, and it's based on the African American spiritual. I'm troubled in mind. Have you heard that one? I don't know, no. Uh, it kind of goes, I'm troubled, I'm troubled, I'm troubled in mind. Like this. Take your word for um, it. <laughs> oh, that was a great rendition. Oh my God, you were um, singing that, uh, but anyway, so that's it's a really actually it's a lovely song. You should go and listen to that on its own. Okay. And Samuel actually wrote piano versions of a lot of African spirituals as well. Okay, and cool. They're stunning, and cool. I'll put a link to those in the Spotify as well. But it's it's a really wonderful um, set of variations. And people say that if you really want to know Samuel Coleridge Taylor, this piece is <laughs> the one. Him deep down. You want to know him. So um, they're orchestral variations. Exactly. Yeah. Right, so okay. and it's it's really revealing, I guess, of his kind of style and and what he was trying to do and. Mm. You know, all mm. the things he did. And actually, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, orchestral work that he did, actually, in, cool. in terms of orchestral scope. Mm. And again, people absolutely loved this. And it really, it took a place in, in the modern orchestral repertoire, like for sure. Cool. And I love it because there's just so much light and shade. It's mm. like a kaleidoscope of beautiful moods. <laughs> and it was really difficult to choose a part to play, actually. That's what's because, wrong with yeah, variations, isn't oh, it? There's just of, so yeah. many different parts that I wanted to, to, to portray it properly. So I chose this bit because um, it's got the original theme in there, the Untroubled uh, in Mind uh. theme. But it's, it's just got a couple of different moods in there. And the orchestral arrangement of this particular part really, I just thought, was fantastic. Mm, so let's absolutely, let's do it. <laughs> That's really cool. It's so I have to admit, I've not listened to any of Sammy CT's work yeah. before today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so what you were saying just before about him taking the the sort of the tunes from the African American spirituals yeah. and incorporating them into the orchestral canon. That, yeah. I mean, that's really cool. So you hear the the sort of like pentatonic melodies that were the sort of the hallmark and the sort of like slightly bluesy notes of the exactly. the, the African American spirituals. Yeah. But use this sort of like orchestral idiom that like that could have been written by Elgar or whoever. Exactly. And there are bits of that that remind me of Tchaikovsky. Weird. Like yeah. there are bits of that entire, you really must listen to the whole, the whole um, symphonic variations. Yeah, it's yeah. really gorgeous. And quite cinematic at points as well. Sure, just this yeah. like vast. It, it's very sweeping. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Amazing. But yeah, fantastic. And, and this is what, as I said earlier, it's what he really aimed to do and, and bring mm. those tunes into the kind of concert repertory. The, the canon. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and he did. And he absolutely smashed it. He smashed um, it out of the park. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this. And yeah, as I said, I'm going to go and put some of his other pieces on the Spotify. Please go and explore all of his backlog. And... Search that classical podcast on Spotify <laughs> to find our playlist. <laughs> and uh, yeah, please let me know your favourite pieces by him because I'd really love to hear from you guys. Absolutely. Right. Now it's time for Benjamin Britten. <laughs> that classical podcast. So, Benjamin Britten. So, here he is. Um, so, we decided to pair these two guys because they sort of didn't quite overlap. So, uh, yeah. Samuel was uh, died in 1912, is that yeah, right? Exactly, and yeah. Benji B, as no one B. calls him, uh, was B. born in 1913. So, they were sort of English composers who just sort of followed on from one another. Right, basically. nice, 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 nice. 
And once again, I am stalling because I don't want to do you my You do 60s. this every time and I look at you with a desperate, desperate look. Um, okay, right, okay. Are you ready? I suppose so. Are you steady? Benjamin Britten, born 1913, died 1976. Uh, he's English, probably the most important English opera composer since Purcell. Um, he was obsessed with writing music as a child, went on to Royal College of Music, didn't like it that much. After that, got a job writing film music, yeah, didn't like that that much. Um, he met tenor Peter Pears in 1937, platonic friendship at first, but developed uh, into love, maybe together for the rest of Benjamin's life, uh, both personally and professionally. Uh, 1939, they both moved to the US. Benjamin's work not getting much of a response, and they were both pacifists. A little bit difficult at the break of outbreak of war. Um, the war starts, they're like, oh, that's bad. 1942, uh, Benjamin Britten reads some poetry, Tree that Lovely. makes them long for the UK and they move back to uh, Britain. And the, 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 the Peter and Benjamin set up the Oldborough Festival um, in the 1950s. Benjamin writes loads more operas during this time. The festival gets bigger and bigger throughout the 50s and 60s. Uh, 1962, he writes The War Requiem, which was hugely important and successful. Uh, Shostakovich described it as the greatest work of the 20th century. In the early 1970s, uh, Benjamin Ten. has problems with his heart, has a small stroke, which ends his performing career, dies of heart failure in 1976, buried uh, the often burial in Westminster Avenue, but uh, turns it down. So, oh. <laughs> oh, no. I think that was the most catastrophic end to what we've had yet. Alright, so Wait, what I was going to say was, happened? he was, because he was such an important British composer, he was offered a burial in Westminster Abbey, turns it down because he wanted to be married oh. next to Peter. Oh. So he was buried in Oldborough and is buried now next to Peter Piers. <laughs> Okay. So wait, so you hadn't finished at that point, but it was a bit <laughs> But I stressed out and stopped. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. This is it. the problem with the format. Turn it down! Uh, brilliant. Oh my God. Tell me more. Okay. So the two sort of big things that, that I touched on but didn't really get into. So Benjamin Britten, really well known for being a pacifist, basically. So Great. during World War II, he was a conscientious objector, which, you know, didn't make him a total social pariah, but people, you know, would generally mm-hmm. pro the war effort during the time mm-hmm. and he was like eh, not really a big fan of war not for me uh, exactly and so he was also openly gay wow and you know again not super yeah, easy yeah that, that is a tough time yeah yeah um, but it worked out pretty well so when he was working what? writing his film music he at that point worked together with W.H. Auden who's a, yes. an American British poet oh, um, who was sort of quite cheerfully openly gay and promiscuous okay. with it uh, <laughs> Benjamin was uh, apparently quite repressed oh. uh, so he was less okay with being openly gay okay. but then WH Auden sort of helped him come out the closet a bit then yeah he met and fell in love with Peter Piers who uh, he works together with and lives together for the rest of his life and hmm. basically cast him in everything he ever wrote oh my god so- <laughs> like um, Johnny Depp in um- <laughs> like in Johnny Depp. Uh, no, and Helen, I, he's not married to Johnny Depp. He's married to Helen well, Bonham I know Carter. But he might as well be married to Johnny Depp because Johnny Depp's in bloody everything. Or was. Um, yes, can that's I, exactly what it's can like. Can I stop you there and ask what films he wrote the music for? Do you know? Uh, nothing that's like famous now, okay. but it was sort fair, of, and it wasn't play. like a big part of his life. It was just sort of that's where he got his start okay. being paid to but write that's, music. That's amazing. Brilliant. Okay, mm. do continue. I shall. So, uh, if you remember, or if you heard at all, that uh, it was 1942, he read these poems by a British poet called George Crabbe. Um, Great name. As in Crabbe and Goyle. <laughs> no, no relation. He <laughs> These poems were set in Suffolk, basically. And one of them was the inspiration for uh, an opera he wrote in 1945. Mm-hmm. Great segue, Chris. Um, this opera is Seamless. called Peter Grimes. 
Grimes and Oh my god. Do you know it? Are you gonna talk about an opera? I know, right? It's Christopher Bland <laughs> going to talk about opera. Guys, I think I see a pig flying out the window. Look a how far I've come. Pal. Wow. Look how far I've I'm come. I'm so proud. Anyway, so this is uh, probably the first English opera to enter the canon to be sort of a serious, important opera by an English composer since oh. Purcell. Um, so that's that's a couple of hundred years that's in between. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. go Britain. And it's the one that basically launched him from being famous in the UK to getting sort of an international profile. So everyone... Breaking the States. Exactly. Am I right? Everyone Just loved like it, us. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, so long story short, the opera is about a fisherman, Peter Grimes, yeah. who's disliked by everyone in his village. However, it's not all as clear as it seems, because he's kind of a douche, is old Peter Grimes. <laughs> okay. um, oh no. So he gives us a really interesting subversion of how... So an opera is usually the lead role is played by a tenor, and we're supposed they're the hero, and we're supposed to love mm, them mm, and support mm, them. Mm, mm, mm. But because Peter's sort of a uh, bit of a drunkard, bit of a twat, of a twat yeah. maybe like beats people up. <laughs> oh maybe the, the plot revolves around him. Peter, maybe maybe having murdered his like assistant. Okay. And so the town is like, we don't like your kind around here. So we're not necessarily supposed to sympathise with him. We're supposed oh. to see ourselves reflected in the villagers who all sort of turn on him. And persecute the individual. So the the big themes of this are how an individual stands against society, which, based on Britain's life, is obviously pretty allegorical to his position Uh, as both a pacifist during wartime and as a gay man in a pretty anti-gay societal sphere. Mm. So the part of the opera that we're going to listen to... 70-year-old spoiler alert here, guys, is from the final scene where one of... Peter Grimes' very few pals in the village basically comes up to him and says, sail till you lose sight of land, then sink the boat. So he's saying... Whilst you're on the boat? Yeah, he's saying it's going to be... Okay. It's going to be better for you and the whole village if you just, just go kill yourself, die. basically. Wow, is he really his friend? It doesn't sound like a matey thing to say, does it? They're not like bosom Get buddies. die. There you go. <laughs> and so what happens is then the scene is that it's dawn, the village is waking up, mm. and the Coast Guard spots that there's, there's a boat sinking out there, and some of the villagers look through the binoculars at this wreck, and they're like, oh, should we go and do something? And they're like, no, it's too far away from land. It's just one of these rumours, is what they say. No. So they're just like, they obviously know exactly what's going on. They just leave it. But they just leave it. Let's listen. What did you make of that? I thought it was very lovely, actually. Uh, it was very ominous and slightly creepy. Yes, um, but, but, exactly but right, very, yeah. very pretty. Yeah. Okay, it. cool. Um, so the really cool thing that he's doing there is um, 
so the background, the sort of the strings, the shimmering strings and the woodwinds mm. doing their little trills. Yes. That's in the build-up of that piece up until the point we just jumped in at. Yeah. And that's to represent the, the sea sort of shimmering and glittering. <gasps> and then when the voices come in... What's happening there is what's called bitonality, so the instrumental accompaniment and the vocals are in two different keys. So what's happening is it's the chorus representing the villagers. What they're singing there is sort of like a hymn to the sea, this sort of quite solemn hymn to the sea. Okay. But it's in a totally different key to the actual sea. No, wait, because hearing that, I was like, this is discordant. Yeah, this is I don't understand this. why. Because it's in a different it. key. It's yeah, in yeah. a totally different key. That's mental. So the accompaniment's in C major and they're singing in A major. Crikey. Which has the effect, oh. I mean, open to interpretation, I guess. But for me, sure. that I, I thought it was sort of, you know, does that represent that the villagers are actually not that in tune with the sea and their way of life? That they're sort of ignoring what's happening at sea by letting Peter Grimes drown? So they're just carrying on singing at odds with what's actually happening at sea. Oh my god. Just general creepiness. Or maybe that they don't all agree with the fact Peter should die, you know, all this stuff. Could mean anything. Oh of that my sort god, I could write a GCSE essay on this. <laughs> so bad. Give yourself some credit. At least AS level. Come on. Come on. Thanks, babe. You got my you got my back. <laughs> I'll tell you why I like this opera more than I like other operas. Please do. A, because they actually sing in a way that is intelligible. You can actually understand How what on earth they're singing you? about. Yeah. Um it's always kind of like musical theatre which I quite enjoy. Like you like the Bernstein opera as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Fair, fair. It's a really, really cool opera. I would recommend listening. I mean, have, have a look at a whole production if you get the chance. But if you're just picking little bits out, Peter Grimes has a really great aria earlier in it, which was sung by Peter Piers at the uh, no premiere, way. of course. Oh, no. Um, called the... <laughs> It's called like now the great bear and pliads, and it's when it's fairly early on uh, when he comes into the local inn and he's just having a little sing at everyone, and they're like, "Who who are you? Leave us alone! We hate you! You're a total douche!" Do you know what? Um, I'll say this for free. My mum hates this opera. Oh no! When I mentioned we were doing Britain today, she just said, "Be she absolutely hates it but don't let that put you off I'm sorry Mrs Harlock yeah um, no I definitely I've never listened to it before so I'm definitely going to go back and listen Please to do. it now uh, and I hope all of your listeners will join me That Classical Podcast so the next piece I'm going to talk about by Monsieur Britain mm. is his War Requiem okay Know, Interesting, because right? he didn't like a war. Do you know what I mean? Uh, uh, oh, but, I'm second guessing I mean, you. <laughs> I mean, you know, take a wild guess. It's probably not a pro-war piece. <laughs> okay, yeah. Fair. Uh, so this was written, or was finished rather, in 1962, uh, written for the reopening of Coventry Cathedral, which was ah. uh, bombed during World War II, was destroyed oh, during the war, right. yeah, yeah. Um, and was rebuilt and reopened. And so this piece was commissioned for that for that occasion okay, cool. and what he does here is he intersperses the latin requiem text so if you remember we've spoken about mozart's requiem yeah and it's sort of it's a set text basically that yeah lacrimosa and all that jazz and dsera and Brilliant. all that fun stuff and he intersperses that with poems in english by wilfred owen do you know him yeah yeah so he's a he's a world mm. war one poet who well he was just a, a soldier in world war one who died i think it was literally a week before armistice day was it? it was oh, so unfortunate crikey. so a thing that i 
haven't mentioned that much yet is the accessibility of Britain's work. Okay. So this is scored for a amateur choir, basically, and a boys' choir, and an orchestra, and a chamber Holy orchestra, moly. and a soprano soloist, and a tenor, and a baritone. Just the whole brigade. Just everyone. Yeah, everyone's yeah, welcome. Yeah, the whole crew. And that was a thing that he did quite a lot. So when he set up the Oldborough Festival as well with Peter Pierce, mm. uh, one of the big things he wants to, wanted to do was make music accessible to as many people as possible, like amateurs and professionals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's partly why he wrote this in English as well, just to make it more accessible and more understandable mm. and make the impact of what he's trying to say with this work, i.e. don't do war wars, guys. <laughs> Please stop yeah. doing a war and making it just a bit more comprehensible by putting it in English as well. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, Shostakovich, of all people, uh, called this the greatest work of the 20th century. Shut the front door. I know. And that's big. Shosty knew his stuff. Shosto. Yeah. He did know his stuff. He did. So the piece we're going to listen to now links quite cleverly between the Latin and the English. All right, mate. Uh, in the poem, the English poem, it's talking about let us sleep, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And the background is the boys' choir singing the Donna Nobis Pacem, which oh, is yes, sort of like Lord Granta's piece. Famous. Latin A-level coming in, so useful once Get more. Get out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so he does this throughout. He sort of interweaves Owen's poetry with the Latin original text. And... As if I wasn't breaking enough with tradition by talking about opera, yeah. I'm actually not going to delve too much into all the musical whys and wherefores. Where is Christopher Bland? What have you done with him? Have you put him on a boat out to sea? And because, to I'll tell you why. Tell me. Because I think the emotional impact of this work is so strong that it's almost a bit silly to delve into why it's so affecting. Welcome to my world, <laughs> young man. I just want to listen to this now and then we can talk about it. Oh, I'm so excited. Let's do it. That's a really difficult piece to stop listening to. <laughs> I want to hear the rest. It's beautiful. Well, you can if you go to our Spotify <laughs> playlist. Nice. Um, yeah, no, that's stunning. It's really good, isn't it? So just a couple of nuggets of information about the piece. So at the premiere, they were meant to have Soviet, English and German soloists. Hashtag symbolic. Whoa, like a Triforce. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, oh. European unity Triforce. <laughs> yeah. Sure, why not? I'll give you three guesses who the tenor soloist was. It was Peter Pears again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the blank look. Come on, man. He was his... I gave him such a blank look, listeners. It was blank. It was blank. Peter Pears was his yeah. soloist of choice all the time. And the way it's set up is that they are usually put in different positions around where it's performed. So the boys' choir, you could hear in that excerpt, sort of sounded quite ethereal and far away because usually they're distanced from the chamber orchestra and the full orchestra. And the so the Soviet soloist was meant to be a soprano, but she wasn't allowed out of the country in time for the premiere. Oh, my God. Thanks, Soviets. Um, so yeah. she had to be replaced by a, a, a British soprano. However... They did let her out in time to do the recording. Okay. But because she'd never 
performed it before, she like didn't know about the setup thing. So when she found out that she was meant to stand with the main orchestra while the two male soloists went and stood with the chamber orchestra, <laughs> she like flipped out. She was so cross because yeah. she thought she was being like disrespected, and they yeah. had to be like, no, no, that's just the way the oh. piece is set up. <laughs> Her heart was in the right place. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah. I'm sure it was. And so this piece on its release was phenomenally successful mm. um really unusually for a sort of a piece of contemporary classical music mm-hmm. so within five months of the release of the recording it sold two hundred thousand copies Whoa, which is huge yes it's like unheard huge. of yeah so it was instantly big old smash hits uh and i can see why i'm yeah, a big fan too me too oh brilliant <laughs> well what else should we listen to if we want to hear some britain oh my days so he's written loads and loads of choral stuff in that tradition of him wanting to make things accessible to as many people as possible mm, yeah. so if you've sung in a choir you may well have sung lots of britain Quite stuff mm. uh he also wrote if you remember back to our purcell episode uh, the theme that he pinched from purcell that he uses for the young person's guide to the orchestra mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is his piece that sort of takes this one tune and passes it around all mm-hmm. the instruments of the orchestra and it's like hey young people that's, the bassoon that's what an orchestra is yeah and off the top of my head that's pretty much it oh we also wrote some really good orchestras sort of the turning of the screw and billy bud and Ooh, death and venice yes. yeah he's just written a lot of nice stuff. just give it a good old google listen to yeah? everything and good luck Not classical podcast. So that's the end of our episode on Benjamin Britten and Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. I hope you enjoyed listening. Yes, indeed. And if you have enjoyed it, why not tell us how much <laughs> on all of our social media outlets? Uh, starting with, let's see if I can get this right, Twitter, at That Classical. Right? Yeah. Uh, Instagram, at That Classical Insta. Oh, yes. Nailed it. Uh, Facebook, just type it into Facebook, guys. Uh, uh, next, email, that classical email at gmail.com. And if you want to hear the pieces that we've used this episode and indeed music from our other episodes, go to our Spotify playlist. If you just type that classical podcast into Spotify, it should come up, but I'll also link it on the Twitter for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And as well as that, if once you've done all that for us, <laughs> uh, why not leave us a review if you haven't yet? Uh, if you go onto iTunes and leave us a... Uh, well, I mean, preferably a good review. A cheeky five star. It helps us out an awful amount. Mm, um, and we really appreciate all of those of you who have taken the time out to write one already. Yeah. Um, other than that, thanks for listening. We'll and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. 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 Bye.